Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is the first episode of a podcast series that will take you through the entire story of the Crusades from their origins right up until the fall of the last Crusader state in 1291. I'm actually recording this introduction about 10 months into the podcast just to say a few quick words about how the series develops. And here I have to make a confession. I began the podcast just looking at the fall of the Byzantine Empire in the 1070s and how that led to the First Crusade in the 1090s. To be honest, I really didn't expect a lot of interest in this fairly obscure bit of history, although I myself happen to think it's absolutely fascinating and very important and surprisingly overlooked. And then I was really surprised and delighted that so many people said that they found it interesting and liked it and wanted it to continue. So I decided to carry on and make it the whole history of the Crusades. Now, please bear with me in these early episodes because the audio probably isn't the best you've ever heard, but I promise it gets better and better and the structure should also become clearer very quickly. I really hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get back to my original recording. The subject of these podcasts is the Battle of Manticurt, fought between the Byzantines and the Seljuk Turks in 1071. It's a subject that's always fascinated me, I think because it's one of those battles that was a real game-changer in history. It effectively ended the Byzantine Empire that had been around since Roman days and was indeed still the last surviving bit of the Roman Empire. But it was much more than that. It was, I think, the cause of the Crusades and later the platform for the Ottoman Empire, one of the world's greatest empires. For such an important battle, there's been very little written about it and it actually seems to be fading from people's consciousness as one of the great battles in history. Or at least that's the case in the West. Not so in Turkey, where it's seen as one of the most important events in Turkish history and President Erdogan is a big fan who regularly celebrates the anniversary of the battle on 26th of August every year, getting literally hundreds of thousands of people to visit the site of the battle in modern Malatskiyat. Because there's a real lack of research into the battle, certainly written in English, that is, there's actually been a bit more written in French, I wrote a book called The Byzantine World War, published last year in 2019, which tries to unravel what really happened at Mansikert, as well as linking it to the First Crusade. I come to some conclusions that perhaps not everyone might agree with, but I hope they're interesting and might provoke some new debate about the battle. So what I'm going to do in this podcast series is to read excerpts from my book related to Mansikert, and in particular the events that led to the battle as well as the battle itself. And I'll kick off with chapter one, which is called A New Hero. So here goes. Hope you enjoy it. In the autumn of 1067... A young Byzantine general stood on trial before the Senate in Constantinople. The charge was treason. If convicted, the penalty would be death. Most people in his place would have been shivering with fear, but not him. A senator recalled that he was tall and his broad chest gave him a fine appearance and he seemed to breathe nobility. 
His name was Romanus Diogenes. The Senate House was a large and ancient Roman basilica at the eastern end of the city. Within its echoing chambers, Romanus faced the assembled rows of senators. They regarded him thoughtfully, knowing that he had an enviable reputation. He was said to be the best general in the army. The soldiers loved him, his enemies feared him. They asked him whether it was true that he had planned a rebellion. He said it was. He had planned a rebellion of the Western army against the emperor. Asked why, he replied simply that the empire was on the brink of disaster. Something had to be done. The emperor and his government had done nothing to stop the barbarians from burning Byzantine cities in the east. Time was running out. He didn't plead for their forgiveness. The senators were silent. They knew that he spoke the truth. So who was Romanus? Well, he was an aristocrat from a family with huge estates in Cappadocia, the heartland of the Byzantine Empire at this time. His father had been a senior general in the army, although 30 years earlier, disliking the vain and incompetent rule of the then emperor, he had been implicated in a conspiracy against him and committed suicide rather than face torture. Surprisingly, this disgrace didn't stop his son from pursuing a successful career in the army, attaining the rank of Vestarch by his thirties, equivalent to a senior general. In Constantine X's reign, Romanus was stationed in the west at Serdica, which is modern Sofia, the capital of Bulgaria, and he'd fought successfully against Byzantium's enemies along the Danube. He became a hero of the Western army and was held in high regard by his enemies because of his military abilities, so much so that the Hungarians were keen to join his rebellion. The senators were surprised and impressed by the honesty of this young general. But before we learn their verdict, why had Romanus chosen to risk his life in a rebellion? The answer lies far away in the east in Cappadocia, where his family had lived for centuries. Several months before his rebellion, Caesarea, a city close to Romanus's own estates in Cappadocia, had been sacked by marauding Turks. It was a prosperous Byzantine city in what is now modern-day Turkey. A thousand years ago, it would have been Greek-speaking and its central square would have been a bustling marketplace full of agricultural produce and livestock from the surrounding countryside. It was famous for its textile industry as well as weapon production. In the 11th century, the city was used to a peaceful existence. It had last been attacked by the Arabs in AD 726, and since then its walls had fallen into disrepair so that it fell without much resistance to a force of several thousand Turkish horsemen. The sack of the city would have been a truly horrific sight. The Turks weren't regular soldiers but nomadic tribesmen from the Asian steppelands, only recently converted to Islam and a primitive people unused to seeing cities like Caesarea. We can imagine that they took delight in an orgy of killing, raping and enslaving its citizens who must have been easy victims. A senator described the pillage of the city's main church. The barbarians broke into the shrine of the illustrious hierarch Saint Basil and tore it apart, looting all the sacred furnishings. They even broke open the saint's tomb. 
Caesarea wasn't the first Byzantine city to be sacked by the Seljuks. They'd sacked others further to the east in Armenia and eastern Anatolia. But Caesarea was different. It was in the heartland of the empire and its destruction signalled that events were spiralling out of hand. Something needed to be done. But the imperial government wasn't doing anything. The old emperor, Constantine X, Ducas, had died six months earlier, leaving government in the hands of his widow, the empress Eudocia, still in her thirties. Her husband had made her vow before the patriarch of Constantinople himself never to remarry. The heir to the throne was her eldest son, Michael, a bookish and unworldly teenager who no one considered either old enough or suitable to be emperor. The senators and the people of Constantinople were increasingly talking of the need to find a soldier to confront the Turks, but who should that be? Let us return to Romanus's trial. The senators were impressed by his honesty when he admitted his guilt. They decided to excuse him from execution and to exile him to an island. However, this lucky escape was just the beginning. His unexpected pardon catapulted him into the limelight and he rapidly became a celebrity in the capital. His youthful spirit and nobility, according to one senator, became the talk of the town. Wasn't a general as selfless and brave as him, just what the empire needed. A senator recorded... Others who had no direct knowledge of him came to know him from those who did, and what they heard made them love him. And it wasn't just the senators and the people of Constantinople who were impressed. The empress asked to see him. Romanus was taken to the great palace, a fabled myriad of beautifully decorated buildings spread over many acres, now almost completely submerged beneath modern Istanbul. He was brought to the throne room, where the empress sat waiting for him. He stood before her. It seems to have been love at first sight. Apparently moved to tears, she immediately pardoned him of all his crimes and released him without punishment. But it soon became apparent that she had other plans for him. No sooner had he returned to his native Cappadocia than he received a message from her. She recalled him to the capital and asked him to become commander-in-chief of the army. From facing execution to this was no small feat, but it was to be followed by something even more spectacular. While Caesarea was a smoking ruin and Turkish tribesmen were closing in on Byzantium's walled cities of Edessa and Antioch in northern Syria, the Empress and the Senate in Constantinople had heard of something even more worrying. There was news that the Turkish Sultan Alp Arslan was marching with an army into Armenia, which he had seized from Byzantine control a few years before, and he was now planning a full-scale invasion of the empire. There was panic in the capital. The people were clamouring for the empress to appoint a general capable of leading the army against the Turks. She called her high council to deliberate what to do. Although she'd sworn a vow before the patriarch never to remarry, she proposed that in this dire state of emergency, an emperor must be appointed. Suitable candidates were discussed. These included Nicephorus Botaniates, a highly regarded general and the governor of Antioch in the east, who was already engaged in a successful defence of the city against the Turks. But it soon became clear that Eudocia had Romanus in mind, and given his recent rise to popularity, 
the decision was not difficult. There was no resistance in the Senate to his being made emperor, not even from the empress's own relations, the powerful Ducas family and the rightful heirs to the throne, for Eudocia's own young son, Michael, was next in line to be emperor. Eudocia called Romanus to the great palace to tell him the news. We'll never know the true story of the relations between Romanus and Eudocia. Were they already having an affair before she made him emperor? Certainly it was extremely convenient that Romanus was not married at the time. Previously, he had been married to the daughter of a Bulgarian noble who died of an unrecorded cause in the 1060s, perhaps dying in childbirth since they only had one son, Constantine. Contemporary sources hint that Eudocia was physically attracted to Romanus and their marriage seems to have been a happy one with two children born in rapid succession. But it shouldn't be forgotten that Eudocia was also a tough politician herself and by marrying Romanus she secured her own political independence, providing, of course, she could control her new husband. On the 1st of January, 1068, Romanus was anointed emperor in the great cathedral of Constantinople, Hagia Sophia, which still dominates the skyline of modern Istanbul. As he stood on the purple stone reserved for imperial coronations, which visitors to Hagia Sophia can still see today, the empress would have been at his side. They must have been a handsome couple. Eudocia was a determined woman in the prime of her life. Beside her, Romanus would have looked every inch the tall, strong soldier. Around them, the great and the good of Byzantium looked on, smiling and elated that now, at long last, a soldier was on the throne. But there were some who weren't smiling, These were the Ducai, or Ducas in the singular, the wealthiest and most powerful family in the empire. The last emperor had been a Ducas, Constantine X, and not surprisingly, the Ducai saw Romanus's promotion to emperor as a threat to their future. The Ducai were led by John Ducas, the last emperor's brother. His title was Caesar, a sort of grace and favour rank conferred by the Byzantines on people considered to be second only to the emperor. And from now on we'll refer to him as Caesar John, as his contemporaries did. When his brother had died in 1067, he had acted as regent for Constantine X's teenage son and heir to the throne, Michael. Romanus's astonishing promotion was particularly galling because it had been done without his prior consultation or agreement. As Romanus was to learn, Caesar John was the worst enemy anyone could have. Well versed in the politics of the court, he was adept at every political stratagem. He was also utterly ruthless, focused only on the preservation of power for the Ducai, Like his brother, the former Constantine X, he didn't care about the fate of the eastern provinces so long as the Ducai maintained their hold on government. Famously bad-tempered and vindictive, it would be no exaggeration to say that Caesar John hated Romanus and felt bitterly betrayed by the empress.
With enemies both internally and externally, the task facing Romanus must have seemed daunting indeed, but no one was more eager to confront the crisis that faced Byzantium. This had been developing for decades, and it is to this subject that we will turn in the next episode. Thank you very much for listening.